taken from John 6. You'll find that in the Bibles in front of you on page 1070, verses 60 to 71. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe. And who would betray him? He went on to say, This is why I have told you, that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. For this time, from this time, many of his disciples turned back, turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? We have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe And know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is the devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who was one of the twelve and was later to to betray him. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the ministers here. Go ahead and keep your Bibles open. It's just 11 little verses, isn't it? But packs a punch, I think. How about we pray as we get started? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you that your son spoke your word. We pray, Lord, that as we reflect on those words together now, that we might hear what it is you have to tell us. Amen. Amen. This is Ronald Wayne. He is an American entrepreneur who started a company back in the 1970s. He was responsible for oversight, administrative oversight of the company, and he also dabbled in a little bit of design, so he came up with the company's very first logo. Now, from the very beginning, Ronald was nervous. Now, he was nervous because out of the three co-owners, he was the only one that had really any significant assets, assets that would be at risk if the company ended up failing. It was a risk that made Ronald just uh, a little more than uncomfortable. Two weeks after launching, he decided to take the safe route and he sold the 10% stake that he had back into the company. The question is, was he right to do it? I would say probably yes, because more than a month later, the company spectacularly failed. Well, no, that's actually not what happened. Turns out the company was Apple Computers. You might have heard of them before, Apple, maybe. They've changed their logo since then. In 1976, Ronald Wayne received $800 and peace of mind for selling his 10% stake. Now, I know what you're sitting there thinking. Just how much would that be worth today? It's quite a bit. (laughs) If Ronald had decided to stick around instead of heading for the hills today, wait for it, he would be worth $75 billion. Billion with a B have enough money to buy a house in Manly, wouldn't he? (laughs) Now, he had the chance to be part of one of the biggest companies the world has ever seen, but just two weeks in, he walked away from it all because he couldn't take the risk. 
He wasn't willing to take the risk. Ever since then, right, for the last 40 years, you've got to think, he's probably been regretting that decision to walk away. <laughs> I mean, how could you not? How could you not? If you've been with us recently on our journey through John's Gospel, two weeks ago, this whole saga really kicked off with Jesus' feeding miracle. He takes like the equivalent of a three-piece feed and he over-caters for a 15,000-strong crowd. <laughs> As you'd imagine, it gets people's attention. Last week, part two, we see a bunch of people from that crowd. They track Jesus down. Why? They're looking for leftovers. They're hungry again. But this time, instead of feeding them food, what does Jesus do? He feeds them the truth. Truth about himself, all washed down with the repeated call for them to accept it and believe in him. And do they? Well, the crowd who came in search for food ended up finding way more than they bargained for, and suddenly they've gone and lost their appetite, and they're actually offended by the food that Jesus has decided to serve up. Which brings us to today's passage, which is really the climax, I would say, of this three-part story. And today we see that Jesus' words have not only offended the hungry Galilean Jews, but they've also offended his very own disciples. And they're so offended, in fact, at this point in the story, a whole bunch of them decide to jump off the Jesus ship. And that, I reckon, is a bombshell. A belief bombshell, in fact. And there's actually three of these bombshells that get dropped, one after the other after the other, just in our 11 verses here in this passage today. And they're belief bombshells because I reckon each one of them has the potential to take what we think it means to believe and shake it to the very core. The first one drops right there in verse 66. From that time, it says, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. That, to me, is shocking. I don't know how you find it, but it is shocking. I even find it pretty unnerving, actually, that Jesus had disciples that turned away from him. Now, think about that for a second. These were people who identified themselves as followers of Jesus. They were people who would have sat for hours at his feet, devouring his every word. People who, who would have stayed in the same places, eaten around the same tables, walked through the same dust, and literally been meters away, meters away from many of Jesus' miracles. And what's their conclusion after all of that? Right there at the start of our passage, what do they say? This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? That is a belief bombshell, friends. They had every reason to believe. Every reason. They had front row seats, right? An all-access pass to the creator of the world. They had heard, they had seen, they'd been there in the flesh, and yet they still decide. Verse 66, you know what? I'm going to pack up and I'm going to go somewhere else. There's someone else I want to follow. And it leaves us, I think, in a bit of a hole. If Jesus' own disciples refused to believe in him, with everything they had going for them, what chance do the rest of us have? Now, it's important to note, I think, that, that when the disciples grumble here about hard teaching, here in verse 60, this is a hard teaching, they're not saying, this is hard to understand, I don't get it. Because the word hard there is actually, it actually means more like harsh or unpleasant or distasteful. 
which I think means that they actually get it. It's that they don't like it. They're not asking for his help, you know, please tell us more. They've actually made up their mind. They're like a child, you know, who spits their food out back at the parent who's trying to feed them, right? This is a rejection of Jesus in these words. They're offended by what he's been saying. Now, it doesn't tell us exactly what it was they were offended by, but looking at what Jesus has been saying previously, I reckon we can make a pretty good guess. That Jesus has just claimed to have come down from heaven. He's claimed to be God's own son. He's claimed to be the essential and only source of life. There in verse 53, last week's passage, he says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, as in unless you believe in me, you have no life in you. To have called himself the bread of life last week is to have claimed to ultimate lordship, ultimate lordship which demands total allegiance, right? The handing over sovereignty of their hearts to him. This is a hard teaching, they say. In other words, this teacher, he claims too much. This guy's asking for too much. Who can accept it? You see, in those days, disciples were trainees, so if you were a disciple, you'd find a teacher, you know, who had good teaching, you'd, you'd attach yourself to them for a while, you'd listen to them, you'd learn from them, you'd get everything you could from the teacher until you couldn't get any more, and so you'd go and find another teacher. And then it would come to a point where you're like, I think I've got enough, I'm going to be a teacher myself, and you'd start collecting disciples. <laughs> I am the bread of life must have been around the point where it dawns on these disciples, you know what, I don't think this is an apprenticeship. You know, I don't think there's any graduation ceremony with this guy. There's not, there's not going to be any advancing beyond him. Because he's standing here, not just passing his teaching on to us, he's saying, you know what, this is it. I am it. There's no going past me. This line, that's the end. Just in case... These disciples haven't got the point. Jesus responds to their grumbling, doesn't try to smooth things over, doesn't try to, try to get them back on side with him. What does he do? He just says exactly what he's been saying, exactly what they've just rejected. What does he say? Flesh counts for nothing. As in, you guys are looking for life in all the wrong places. You're not going to find it with the flesh. Where are you going to find it? It's the spirit that gives life, Jesus says. And guess what? My words are full of spirit and life. You guys got to hear what I've been saying. Given who I am, you got to hear my words and believe. That's all there is for you to do. There's nothing new here in what Jesus is saying. He's just repeating exactly what he's been saying all along. And even though they've heard it again and again, they don't believe. They don't believe. Instead, they leave. And it's a bombshell. Because, you see, it doesn't matter how many miracles they'd seen him perform. It doesn't matter the wisdom that they'd heard him teach. At the end of the day, they weren't willing to call him Lord. They weren't willing to lay their life down at his feet. And so, whatever they'd seen, whatever they'd heard, none of it made any difference. To borrow from Scott's sermon a couple of weeks ago, the problem was not with the lack of evidence. <laughs> the problem was with their heart. The second of the three belief bombshells 
that falls immediately in the verses that follow. I can't really imagine what the mood must have been like for those disciples who stuck around, right? That day. The dejection, like it would have been so demoralizing. People that they probably had gotten to know pretty well, all of a sudden packing their things and saying, we've had enough and leaving. That's devastating. I've got a mate, now lives in another country. We were once inseparable, right? We grew up going to church together, going to youth group together. We, we ended up on the same youth leading team and, and the two of us took the exact same group of boys through three years of youth group. We led. We were really close for a long time. We even we were, we were groomsmen for each other as we got married. A couple of years ago now, uh, he decided to pretty much walk away from the faith. He gave it up. I still love him. We're still mates, but I've found it really hard, if I'm honest. Someone who you've walked alongside on the journey for, for so long, for him then to just leave it by the wayside and walk off. There's something, there's something really unnerving about that, I think can make you even doubt your own faith. Now, I'm not sure whether there's much that is more disheartening than when people we know and love walk away from their faith. It's heartbreaking. And I'm sure we all know people who fall into that category. And I think that makes what Peter then says here in the passage all the more extraordinary. All the more of a belief bombshell. Because it's here in these in these words, in the shadow of their disappointment and untimely farewells, Peter says what I reckon is one of the most profound statements in the whole Bible. In the whole Bible. Verse 67. You do not want to leave too, Jesus asked the twelve. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Complete and utter contrast to what the earlier disciples had been saying, right? They had said, Where there's heaps of places we'd rather be than right here. We want to go find someone else to follow. What does Peter say? There is no one else. Where would we go? He says. That's a perfect example of faith, isn't it? Beautiful words. Peter totally knocks the answer out of the park. It's a home run in every sense of the word. It's so good, in fact, I think we take a look at that and we go, Wow. Could I say that? <laughs> Before, we might have asked the question, you know, how can we accept it if Jesus' own disciples can't accept it? But here, the question kind of changes to, how can we possibly achieve that? Like, Peter just sets the bar so incredibly high, doesn't he? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I love those words. I love how he says it. And it's an easy enough thing for us to say but it's a hard thing to, to mean, isn't it, <laughs> if we're being honest with ourselves. And it's a super hard thing for actually to live out with any kind of consistency. Peter's statement is a bombshell, I reckon, because it's intimidating. Makes us ask the question, could I say that? Could I be so confident? And it's worth us asking then, how is it that we might get there? What does that kind of faith take? Which of Peter's qualities do we need to embrace? What's the secret? What's he realized that we haven't? What insights and wisdom 
Where does it come from, right? How can we all have Peter-sized faith? The answer to that question is found in Jesus' response. And it's not what we might think. Like, I'd totally expect Jesus to reply to Peter's answer with a smile, like a pat on the back, a well done, good and faithful servant. I knew you guys would have my back. That's not what Jesus says though, is it? And what he says is actually the third and final belief bombshell. There in verse 70. There's no praise for Peter, not even a thank you. What does Jesus say? Have I not chosen you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? It's like, whoa, way to ruin the mood, Jesus. It's like, what a strange response. What a strange response. Jesus is like, hang on there, sec, Pete. Before you go around handing out the Disciple of the Year awards, just take a moment and answer me this question. Was it not I that chose you? Was it not I that chose you? You're here, not because you're such a great bunch of guys. I mean, one of you's a devil. One of you's going to turn me in. You guys are here, not because you're awesome, not because you've got such great courage or insight or humility. The only reason you are still here, in all honesty, is because I chose you to be. I chose you to be. Bombshell right there. Am I right? Bombshell. Turns out Jesus has been referring to God's divine choice for quite a while. If you caught it, even in our passage today, we've got in verse 65, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. Even in our passage today, last week, there were two times, he says in verse 37, all, the, all those the Father gives me will come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Later in the gospel, Jesus makes it about as clear as he possibly can. In, in chapter 15, he says to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. About as clear as you can get, right? God's election of people to salvation, it's here. It's here in, in John's gospel. It's actually throughout the entire Bible. And so we can't just let, it, let this thing kind of go through to the keeper, as much as I might like to not have to speak about it. Let this one go. We can't. And that's a good thing because I reckon this is an area that a lot of us struggle with as Christians from time to time, perhaps. It's an area that our young people particularly struggle with, I've found. Our youth ask questions about this stuff all the time. You know what? My youth leaders then start asking questions about it as well. Look, I hope they're taking notes tonight. The doctrine of election is super important. It's not a side issue, it's not a too hard basket, it's actually super important. And I'd go so far as to say that we cannot understand the fullness of God's grace, nor can we taste the extent of its sweetness, unless we're willing to consider the place that God's divine choice plays. That's the truth. That said, I think it is fair to say that, it, that it's a hard teaching, and by that, I mean both in the sense of it being hard to understand as well as hard for us to accept. So firstly, what is hard to understand about this? Well, some questions you might have or have heard asked before. Doesn't God's election, doesn't it destroy our freedom? Doesn't it kind of make us like robots? 
And secondly, isn't God choosing some but not others? Is that really fair? Is that fair of God to do? I'm going to take a quick look at both these questions because they're good questions, questions I've definitely asked myself. So firstly, when we, when we come to the idea of freedom, like we see there in verse 65, what does Jesus say? This is why I told you, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. No one can come to me. We hear those words and we go, wow, that sounds, that sounds pretty restrictive. Like if someone's there banging on the door, you're telling me that, that they're just going to be turned away. They don't have the freedom to choose God. That sounds restrictive. Is that what Jesus is saying? Well, it's not, actually. That's not what he's saying. Because it's not a lack of freedom that keeps someone from God. It's a lack of desire. It's a lack of desire. Here is an example. Let's say you win a competition. And the competition is free holidays once a year for the rest of your life. And every year you get to choose between the two same destinations. On the one hand, you get to choose, you could choose the, the yacht drifting in the Mediterranean and a secluded Greek island, right? It's pretty tempting. What's the other option? Well, the other option is a one-month stint as an inmate in ADF Florence, which is the only supermax prison in the US. 23 hours a day of solitary confinement. We're the most violent prisoners from every penitentiary in the country. Hmm. <laughs> What's it going to be? What will you choose? <laughs> You're going to learn Greek, aren't you? <laughs> because you're just never going to choose to holiday at the Supermax. It's not that you don't have the option available. It's there. You can choose it. It's that you never will choose it because you never will want to. How do you describe that choice to your friends? Are you crazy? Like, I just can't. I can't choose a prison... Are you crazy? I can't choose it. That's how you describe it, right? And it's not because you lack the freedom to choose it. You could, but it's because you lack the desire to choose it. And here's the truth about us. We don't choose God. And it's not because we lack the freedom to. It's because we lack the desire. We never want to come to Him. Because it means giving Him the reins. It means handing over sovereignty of our hearts to Him. Because of our sin, our, our hearts naturally, we look at relationship and life with God and we go, that looks like a supermax prison for eternity. I can't choose that. And so we're never going to want to choose God unless, unless there's an intervention, unless God stages a coup in our hearts and he overthrows the dictator. Unless God opens our eyes to the grace and the beauty and the freedom of the gospel and of a life lived in step with His Son. Unless God does a work in us, we're never naturally going to come to Him. Not because we can't choose it, but because we can't want that. Not without His help. So if God's election doesn't destroy our freedom... What about fairness, right? Is it fair for God to choose some people but not others? And why wouldn't God just decide to save everybody? Here's the reality. We are told very little about why God chooses whom he chooses. So little, in fact, that actually we don't have enough to be able to accuse God of being unfair. 
God is not interested in telling us who's not chosen. We are never invited to speculate or to try to work it out for ourselves. This is God's knowledge and he doesn't give it to us. I find it strange, actually, that we give so much weight to our speculation about who God's not chosen, something that we are never going to know. We give so much weight to that and yet we end up disregarding the one thing we do know, the enormous and undeserved grace that he's offered to us. That should get given the weight, shouldn't it? Not the speculation. And that's really the thing, I think, when it comes to this. We know so little, so very little about why God chooses whom he chooses. And yet the very little that we do know shows God to be a God of staggering grace. A God who chooses the foolish in order to shame the wise. A God who chooses the the weak in order to shame the strong. He chooses the downtrodden, the forgotten, the unlovable the dishonored, the disfigured. Our God is one who chooses first those whom our world chooses last. Just like it was with Israel. God chose them, not because they had the most people, they were the most glorious, but because they had the least people. So while we don't know much when it comes to his divine choice, the little that we do know shows our God to be a God of overflowing mercy, doesn't it? Now, the other reason I think we find this doctrine a hard one to accept is because deep down, we want to believe that in some way, we're responsible for God choosing us. Now, this is a speculation, but I would not be surprised if, as Peter stands boldly and with courage and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? I wouldn't be surprised if he's just that little bit proud or impressed with himself of being able to say that. You know, we're not like those deadbeat disciples that have just packed up and left. We are with you, God. We are with you all the way. We've got your back. Peter's pride then, I think, makes sense of why Jesus responds in such a strange way. Peter's, Jesus is like, oh, hang on a sec, Peter. Before you pat yourself on the back, let me just remind you, I was the one who chose you. I'm really into bargains. I'm a bargain hunter. I'm sure there's some bargain hunters out there as well. And so I really love finding deals at Coles. <laughs> Coles might be a, a funny place to say you're going to find bargains, but four words, reduced for quick sale, right? You know what I'm talking about. I go hunting for reduced for quick sales just to try and find the biggest discount. You know, 20%, keep going. But you get to the 40%, you hit the jackpot, right? And I'm willing to take the risk. I really am. I haven't got sick yet. But I think sometimes as Christians, we can be like that, can't we? You know, Jesus died. He's the one that's done it. God offers it to us freely. It's got nothing to do with myself. But you know what? I found that deal. You know, I, I, I found that bargain. I found it on the shelf and I was willing to take it. I was willing to take the risk and, and snaffle that bargain. And we can start to think, you know, God must have seen something special in me for me to then choose him. There must have been something, you know, if only because I was humble enough to repent or I was open-minded enough to see the truth of the gospel. I was disciplined or committed or obedient 
whatever it might be, must be, there, there, there must be something that led me to choose God. And the truth is, there isn't. There actually isn't. There is nothing that makes you more worthy of God's choice than anyone else. There's no quality, there's no skill, there's no characteristic, there's nothing that you bring to the table that leans His choice in your direction. Do you know why God sets His affection on you? It's because He loves you. That's why. It's because He loves you. And does that sound kind of circular? God loves you because He loves you? It, it is circular, and it, it actually needs to be. Love needs to be secular or, uh, circular, or it, it turns into a business transaction, actually. Let me put it like this. Say I tell my son one day that I love him, and I do, I tell him quite often. Imagine if he stops and says, hang on a sec, Dad, why is it that you love me? And I say, oh, well, that's easy. I love you because you're just so darn cute. <laughs> and you, you always pick up your clothes and clean your room when I ask you to. You know, I really love you because last week you did such a good job. You won the 50-meter freestyle at the swimming carnival. Great job, mate. Is he going to like that answer? He's going to be terrified, isn't he? And he'll sit there and go, well, what if I stop being cute? What if I don't clean my room? What if I lose the 50-meter freestyle next year? What's going to happen to my dad's love? Friends, that is not love. It's a business transaction, right? I will love you so long as you give me what I want. If we have a God who says to us, I loved you because you repented. I loved you because you submit to me. I loved you because you're doing such a good job at obeying. That is not love. And we will never love a God who we believe is only loving us because we're doing a good job. If he doesn't love us for ourselves, you know what? We're not going to love him for himself either. <laughs> we're only going to love him as long as he's answering our prayers, as long as he's giving us worldly comforts. If it's only when we realize that God loves us just for ourselves, will we then be able to love him just for himself and not for his stuff? All right. Where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? First two bombshells we looked at together this morning. It make, makes it look like believing in God is really hard, doesn't it? All the evidence in the world is not enough. Peter's words just go and put the bar so very high for what it means to believe. You know, our conclusion is, wow, this is hard. This is tough. But then along comes this final bombshell, and we discover that belief is not hard. It's impossible. It's impossible. None of us come naturally. None of us naturally choose God because by default, none of us want to, unless He chooses us first, unless He infiltrates our hearts, opens our eyes, transforms our desires, no one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father has enabled them. So where does that leave us? Where does it leave those who don't believe? The first thing is, you are here this morning, and that is great. Whether today is your first time with us, or maybe you've been here for many years, today you've heard the Word of God, and Jesus' appeal to you is exactly the same as it's ever been, exactly the same as it is to the people in this passage today. Hear His Word, His words of life, and believe in Him. You see, Jesus isn't selective in who He calls. 
He calls all who are willing to listen to him. So listen and keep listening and keep coming. And as you do, ask yourself this question. What impact is God's word having in my heart? And if you notice something shifting, don't ignore it. (laughs) Explore it. Because as Jesus said last week, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. There is your open invitation. Maybe it's time to take it. There might be some of us here as well who've heard this stuff this morning and gone, you know what? I might not be chosen. I thought I, thought I believed, but maybe I don't. And maybe God hasn't chosen me. Our youth ask this question all the time. All the time. They'll say things like, you know, I'm praying, but I'm just not feeling close to God. You know, I'm, I'm sinning, I'm doing this stuff, and I hate it, and I can't stop doing it. Maybe it means God's not chosen me. You might have asked that question as well. I'm going to say to you what I say to them. Okay, so you're worried about whether you've been accepted by God. You're anxious because God feels distant to you right now. Do you really think you're capable of having those longings and those feelings all by yourself? You are giving yourself too much credit. You're not capable of wanting closeness with God without Him already being at work within you. So the fact you're feeling this way is a good indication, not a bad one. As Tim Keller puts it, I love this, a distressing sense of God's absence might actually be a proof of His presence. So take heart and be encouraged. And then there's those of us who are confident they believe. What does God's election do? Well, it unveils to us the full sweetness of His abundant grace. And it it does a couple of things for us, I think. Firstly, it leads us into greater humility. (laughs) To realize that there's nothing better about me than people who don't believe. I can't be condescending or superior. I am no more deserving of God's mercy than anyone else. And that also means that I can't say, you know, God hasn't chosen that person. They're so far away from him, there's no way they're coming back. We don't know what happens to the disciples here that walk away. We're not told. We're not given that information. They they could well have arrived on the day of Pentecost and heard Peter's amazing words and come to faith. We do not know. And my friend that's walked away from the faith, I don't know. I'm going to keep praying for him then. I'm going to keep telling him God's word and longing and hoping that he comes back. The other thing that this does, the doctrine of election, is that it gives us security. I mean, if we can't earn God's love, we also can't unearn it, can we? It can't be taken from us. He loves you, He's chosen you, and neither of those things can ever be lost. That's got to liberate us from all manner of fear and doubt and uncertainty. He has us, he loves you, and you can never change that, so be assured. In 1979, Ronald Wayne walked away from a company that would have made him a billionaire. It's easy to chuckle at his decision, but he had no way of knowing what he was giving up. But you know what? We do. We know, because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And that is the down payment, the guarantee for our own resurrection. We know what we're giving up. Ronald Wayne only lost, what, $75 billion? Only $75 billion. 
when it comes to us hearing and believing the words of eternal life, the stakes are actually much, much higher than that because there's no amount of money in the world that can afford what God offers to us. No amount of money in the world. As we've seen today, when God's word is heard, some leave and others believe. What will it be for you? Let's pray. Father God, as we prayed this morning, as we began, we thank, we're thankful for your word and we're thankful for your son and we're thankful for the words he has spoken and the words we've heard him speak today. For those of us who don't yet believe, Lord, we pray that you would do a work in their hearts to help them see the sweetness of your grace. For the rest of us, Lord, give us confidence and assurance that you have us. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. I'm going to hand over to Dave. Is this our item? We can actually remain in our seats uh, and just listen to the words of this next song. And then our final song, that's when the collection bags will come around. You can pop your Connect card in or your financial contribution if you have that today as well. to my feet the light into my 
can respond to my soul. Your word is revelation. Please stand and sing together one more song. Here in the 
the power of Christ I'll stand. What a great way to finish church, just to praise God. Um, what a tough message to hear this morning, but a really, really encourage one, encouraging one at the same time. If you heard something that really touched you and you need some prayer, our prayer team will be down the front to pray with you. We're going to have some morning tea outside in a minute. Before we do, let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the gospel of John and for the teaching that's in it. Father, we thank you that we have been chosen, not because we deserve it, but because of Jesus' love, his compassion, his grace for us. We are undeserving, we are rebellious, we are sinners, yet you chose us and we are thankful for that and we praise you, Father. Let that truth dwell in our hearts as we go forward today, this week, into the years and months ahead, Lord. We pray that that truth would dwell in us and that we would never turn from you, but, to kin but would continue to strive for eternity with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.